Hello from Gilbert and Tobin. I'm Moya Dodd. And I'm Matt Rubenstein, and this is The Competitive Edge, what you need to know about competition law in Australia and around the world. Today, Marathon Man. Assistant Minister for Competition, Charities and Treasury, Dr Andrew Lee, joins us to talk about justice, equality, economic dynamism and ultramarathons. Whether you think that there are instrumental reasons for caring about inequality because people might feel worse to be at the bottom of the pecking order or whether it's just a matter of the simple notion that a dollar buys more happiness for someone who's living homeless than someone who's a billionaire, you need to care about inequality. But first, Matt, What's been happening around the grounds? Well, this is something Dr. Lee's spoken about recently. There's kind of a mounting concern about the need to increase productivity right now. And the Productivity Commission has just put out the final report of its productivity inquiry, which it's calling Advancing Prosperity. Well, I'm a bit concerned about my own productivity because I've just recovered from Mardi Gras, Pride, International Women's Day. But people always talk about the Hilma reforms of the 1990s, which greatly improved productivity and gave a big bump to our GDP. It's a bit like the AC Milan team of the 1990s, isn't it, Matt? We've been trying to recapture that magic ever since. The Invincibles, but not those ones or those other ones. And that is what the Harper Review was supposed to do. It's just that not many of its recommendations were ever implemented beyond the competition and consumer law changes. And some people have argued that when it comes to further reforms, most of the low-hanging fruit's already been picked while others would say that that's a cop-out and there's still a lot of obvious stuff left to do. Yeah, and the new report has 29 directives and 71 recommendations in areas from tax to education to even migration policy. But probably the most interesting from our point of view would include the recommendations to boost competition and encourage business creation, to lift productivity in those non-market sectors like health, education and social services, and to get to net zero emissions at the lowest possible cost. We do know that the Potato Marketing Board in Western Australia was finally dissolved. Yeah, it's gone. Are there any other classics still around? They do say, again, that pharmacy ownership and location should be deregulated. Oh, yeah. But they don't spend a lot of time on that. And they're having another go at road user charging as well. Well, the tyres went down on that one when Harper took it for a spin. They did, but it might get a bit of a toe now that electric vehicles are taking off. uh, True. Fuel excise won't be a great way to charge for road use in the future. True. And that's going to play into how we get to net zero at the least cost, too. It is. And there, the Commission is really getting behind the safeguard mechanism that was introduced in 2016 as the main way to reduce emissions. That's the obligation on the largest emitters to keep their emissions below a baseline limit or to offset them with carbon credits, which is also under review at the moment. It is. There's consultation at the moment about changes that would start to reduce those baselines. Mm -hmm. And the Productivity Report also says the mechanism should apply to more industries and also more individual facilities within those industries. And it should make sure that carbon credits are only available to projects that are really making a difference. So you can't get credits for not cutting down trees that you weren't going to cut down anyway. Yeah, ideally you wouldn't. And what do they say about economic dynamism? Well, they're in favour of that, but they do warn against specific competition rules for industries such as digital platforms. They say that markets can be competitive and productive with a small number of players, as long as they're vigorous competitors. And they're recommending against any new merger clearance processes. So quite a different approach from the ACCC then. Yeah. And how does this line up with the parliamentary inquiry into economic dynamism? Well, that inquiry is gearing up now. It's accepting submissions until the end of March. But the terms of reference do kind of assume that there's a problem with concentration, as Dr. Lee has often said, and that that's undermined productivity and also stifled wages. They had some public hearings recently and heard from the Productivity Commission and the ACCC. They did. Productivity Commission Chair Michael Brennan said that there might be a link between slower productivity growth and higher concentration, but it wasn't clear to what degree one might be influencing the other. 
Uh, he did make clear that concentration is only ever part of the story. It's not hard to identify sectors where you can see a headline increase in market concentration, uh, but just the kind of eye test, if you like, suggests that there is pretty vigorous competition going on. So I think we identified, for example, department stores as being an area where there is a degree of concentration, possibly even an increase in concentration, but they're subject to very vigorous concentration, uh, very vigorous competition, either from specialty retail, online retail, etc. And the ACCC, of course, said that competition was crucial to reduce prices and increase customer choice, and that concentration could be an issue. But did they buy into the assumption, if there was one, that concentration of itself is a problem? I mean, not exactly. Here's what Rajat Sood, who's the acting chief economist at the OCCC, said about that. Concentration is one of the key features of market structure and high levels of concentration tend to give rise to market power concerns. An important issue that competition agencies around the world are currently considering is whether concentration has been underrated as a factor influencing firm behaviour and market outcomes and uh, in recent decades? And, and if so, could that be because too much faith has been placed on the scope for entry and expansion in, in addressing um, market power concerns, especially given the apparently slow rate at which incumbents are being displaced from dominant positions in, in, in many markets? Well, I don't know. Has it? Could it? Yeah, I'm not sure the ACCC has underrated concentration as a factor, though it's never been the be-all and end-all. They'd always look at the whole picture. So it does sound like both the Productivity Commission and the ACCC are suggesting that the inquiry might dig a bit deeper. It does. Um, We'll keep an eye out for the submissions as they come in and see what the inquiry recommends. And speaking of competition rules for digital platforms, I see that our team have put together a great summary of what we know so far about the ACCC's repo number seven, lucky number seven which is about expanding digital ecosystems. That's right. As the team says, the discussion paper recognises that ecosystems can have important benefits. Uh, It is handy if your watch and your phone and your headphones all work well together, and maybe even your whole car if uh, Apple's plans anything to go by. Right. But the ACCC is also worried that an ecosystem can lock in customers and make it hard for them to switch or to combine products from different suppliers if that would suit them better. And it's also concerned about the data that might be combined across the ecosystem, as well as with dark patterns and other unfair practices that can lead to additional consumer harms. That's right. And speaking of dark patterns, in the US, the FTC has just finalised an order against Epic for using dark patterns to trick players into making unwanted purchases in the Fortnite game. They're saying that the game's counterintuitive, inconsistent and confusing button configuration meant that players have ended up with unwanted charges based on the press of a single button. Hmm. And Epic's going to pay $245 million, which the FTC will distribute uh, to customers who have been affected. And all this is because Fortnite is basically free to play, but it makes its money through microtransactions or subscriptions, where basically you buy dance moves or virtual outfits to express your individuality. Yeah, which is perfectly fine if that's what you want, but uh, not if it's because of a dark pattern. Well, I just stick to the default dance because that was Antoine Griezmann's goal, Sally, after scoring in the 2018 World Cup final, I'm sure you remember. Although when I do it, my kids laugh rather more than seems to be warranted. So I don't know. I think the joke's on me. (laughs) I support you in whatever you do, Maya. Kids have a weird sense of humour. Well, thank you, Matt. 
Of course, Epic is still in court with Apple and Google to try and get Fortnite onto mobile phones without having to use their app stores and their payment systems with that 30% clip of the ticket. Right. Although it turns out that being able to use your own payment system might not be all it's cracked up to be. You might remember that after Apple was investigated by the Dutch antitrust authorities, it agreed to let dating apps like Tinder use their own payment systems. Yeah, but didn't Apple still charge them up to 27% on purchases because they were still using the App Store? So they'd wind up paying that to Apple and then the best part of 3% to third parties like Visa or MasterCard. That's right. And big surprise, the Dutch authority has told Emleks that no dating apps have taken advantage of Apple's offer yet. Well, that was a hard swipe left. I don't know what that means, but I'm sure you're right. (laughs) And in the same area, the European Commission has just modified the statement of objections that it sent to Apple in 2020. It's now saying that it no longer objects to the requirement that in-app purchases have to use Apple's payment system. It only objects to Apple's rules that prevent apps from helping users make payments outside the Apple ecosystem, which is what they call the anti-steering rules. Well, I don't think I'd want an Apple car if it's got anti-steering rules. But anyway, is that why you can sign up to basic Spotify in the app, but it can't link to its website to upgrade? It just says you can't upgrade to premium in the app. We know it's not ideal. Yeah. And with Netflix, you can't even sign up. It just tells you you can't sign up for Netflix in the app. We know it's a hassle. Not as much of a hassle, I guess, as paying 30% extra. But is that the kind of thing the ACCC will be looking at in repo number seven? Yeah, it's already had a look in repo number two, which was all about app stores. Mm -hmm. And it took a pretty dim view, especially of the anti-steering rules. It also came up in repo number five uh, as something that could be dealt with under an ex-ante code of conduct. But it may well come back again, as it's certainly an ecosystem issue too. Well, it seems like we're back where we started. What else is new? Well, the High Court has once again found for our friends in the IP team. This time, it's ruled that it's not a trademark violation, and it's also not misleading or deceptive conduct, to say that your anti-wrinkle or anti-aging cream is an instant Botox alternative, or even to name it Protox. This all sounds very topical. Definitely. I mean, Botox is injectable, of course, but Protox is certainly topical. Well, here the global pharmaceutical company and Botox maker, Allegan, took Self-Care Corporation to court over the packaging and advertising of its skincare product. But the High Court confirmed that Self-Care wasn't using the words instant Botox alternative as a trademark, but it was just descriptive. And its Protox brand wasn't deceptively or confusingly similar to Botox. That's right. Even though, as the court said, and this is a quote, The word Protox uses two short consonants, P and R, to make the syllable pro, which is visually and orally similar to bow. Both pro and bow are sounded through the lips together, and the word Otox is distinctive and identical between Protox and Botox, and is an identical rhyme. Well, I'm glad we got a High Court ruling on that one. Um, It does sound like the beginning of a cryptic crossword, though, Matt. Yeah, or a Dr. Seuss book, maybe. So, were the Botox people surprised at the decision? I mean, they looked surprised, but hard to know for sure. Yeah, true. Well, our head of IP, Michael Williams, told the Financial Review that trademark law has internal checks and balances to protect brands while allowing free speech and competition. This means that you can say, this is a McDonald's burger without infringing the McDonald's trademark. Or, like Hungry Jack says, its burgers are better than McDonald's. And that is fundamental to the ability of brands to compete with each other, he says. And a competing law firm, Allens, has said that it's in the nature of comparative advertising to use a competitor's trademark in a composite phrase, which I'm sure is true, if not quite as evocative, perhaps. So can we say that our burger analogies are better than Allens without getting into trouble? Yeah, that's my takeaway from the case. A new wrinkle in the story of intellectual property and competition law. Straight from the headlines. 
But Moya, you recently caught up with Dr. Andrew Lee, the Assistant Minister for Competition, Charities and Treasury. And I mean, do you think we can read anything into the order that he's chosen for those three parts of its portfolio? Well, they do say that the greatest of these is charities. They do. You could argue that competition is faith, I guess, and treasury is hope, but it might be the other way around. Maybe. Well, we did touch on religion, but uh, Dr. Lee also had a lot to say about poverty and inequality, about how sports compare to financial markets and concerns about concentration, as well as marathons and ultramarathons. That sounds exhausting, but in a good way. Let's take a listen. Today, it's my great pleasure to introduce Dr. Andrew Lee, who's the Assistant Minister for Competition and Charities and Treasury. Welcome, Dr. Lee. Thanks, Maria. Lovely to be with you. You've had quite a fascinating career. You grew up in Sydney and Melbourne and Malaysia and Indonesia, I understand. What took you to those places and what did you take from that? So my parents are both academics and in the late 1970s worked in a program setting up a research training institute in Bandar Aceh in Indonesia. It's a very remote area in the very north of the island of Sumatra. We moved there as a family when I was uh, around five years old and uh, left when I was around eight years old. That was a remarkable experience for a middle-class white kid from Australia to suddenly be the only kid with a different skin colour in my class. I attended uh, the local Achenese school for a couple of weeks uh, where we sang uh, nation-building songs, not largely as a way of uh, teaching uh, kids about uh, literacy, but mostly as a way of inculcating a sense of Indonesianness in a province where the central government was very worried about them breaking away. After a couple of weeks, my mum decided that uh, preventing me joining the Achenese rebels was probably not her top priority for education, and I might do better with correspondence schooling from Australia. So that was how I got most of my learning in Indonesia. But a remarkable experience to have as, have as a young kid, and uh, one that's really shaped me in unexpected ways. Yeah, as you said, to be the only white kid in a class of others must have left an impression on you at that age of what it's like to be in the minority. Yes, that's right. I mean, it's only a very tiny window into what those who were in the minority in Australia experience on a daily basis. But, you know, to have a few rocks thrown at you because of your skin colour when you're a young kid is, I suppose, something that gives you slightly more sensitivity to the experiences of more marginalised communities as somebody who is now very much part of the uh, most fortunate group in Australian society as a middle-class white bloke. You certainly moved on to a career that reflected some of that sensitivity, I think. You studied law and economics and you worked as a lawyer. You were... Justice Kirby's associate at the High Court at one stage. Tell us about that. Yes, Michael Kirby taught me more than anybody else except my parents. I learned probably as much about the law in a year as a High Court associate as I did in six years of legal studies. More important, Moya, was the focus that he had on never punching down, on being as kind as he could to those less fortunate to him, but certainly being unyielding when it came to taking on vested interests. He was, uh, at the time, the uh, the most prominent gay man in Australia, although uh, he didn't formally come out until shortly after I finished working with him. You also went to Harvard, right? And am I right in thinking that you have two degrees from Harvard? Yeah, so I began to feel increasingly after finishing up with Michael Kirby and doing some work as a policy advisor in the UK and Australia, that for the problems I really cared about around poverty and disadvantage, that the 
economic framework of incentives was more useful than the legal framework of rights. So decided that I needed to get some better training and enrolled initially in a Master's of Public Administration at Harvard and then discovered that I didn't just enjoy learning to read and understand academic studies, but I wanted to be able to write them as well. So then completed a PhD and really you know, learned most of my economics there. And that brought me back to the ANU as an economics researcher and uh, where I ended up an economics professor before entering parliament. Uh, but you have an MPA and a PhD from Harvard. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. Two degrees. So on average, and this is very important, on average, the participants in this conversation have one Harvard degree each. Precisely. So this is probably the most educated conversation I've ever had, Andrew. Right, I mean, right. it may not be the most educated conversation you've ever had, <laughs> but I'll do my best, right? <laughs> well, it was funny when I moved from academia to politics because I realised that uh, entire weeks could go by at the ANU when I wouldn't have a conversation of any length with someone who didn't either A, have a PhD or B, was studying to do a PhD. Uh, the breadth of, uh, of, of conversations you have in politics is much richer and, and it's one of the reasons why I, I love this job. Well, your PhD was on poverty and inequality, wasn't it? Why the fascination with poverty and inequality? Where does that come from? From my parents. My parents uh, were involved in Methodist Christianity as kids and very interested in social justice movements. While they were in the US, the events of 1968 were roiling that country. And in living in Malaysia and Indonesia, they were acutely aware of disadvantage. So the, the gap between rich and poor is something that's, that's always troubled me, whether you think that there are instrumental reasons for caring about inequality because people might feel worse to be at the bottom of the pecking order, or whether it's just a matter of the simple notion that a dollar buys more happiness for someone who's living homeless than someone who's a billionaire, you need to care about inequality. You've got some views on incarceration too, I read, not just about the ethics of locking up people, which we apparently do to a much greater degree than we did 30 years ago, but also the cost of it, which you've put forward into the public debate as a reason for why people should reconsider the amount of incarceration that we as a society impose upon ourselves. Yeah, the incarceration rate has increased markedly since the mid-1980s in Australia and uh, over recent years has been at its highest level since Federation. That's partly a fiscal issue. Prisons are very expensive. In Australia, locking someone up in a uh, jail costs about as much as it does to put them in an overnight stay in a very nice hotel in a city centre. But it's also the case that we have pretty high recidivism rates and that prisons are less often universities of learning than universities of crime. The increase in incarceration has occurred right across the spectrum. So if you commit an offence, the police are more likely to catch you. They're more likely to charge you, conditional on catching you. That case is more likely to go to court. You're more likely to spend time behind bars while you wait for your case to be heard. Uh, and then you're more likely to get sentenced. And then you're more likely to get a longer sentence. So we just pushed out all of these dimensions. And that's had a, a particularly pernicious effect on Indigenous Australians, whose incarceration rate is now markedly higher than when the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Deaths in Custody came down in the early 1990s. And is that because politicians have found it easy to recite a tough-on-crime policy? They, they say when Laura Norder shows up on the ballot paper, she always gets a tick. Is that part of our political process, in other words, that's led us there? The Law and Order auction at election time has certainly been a problem. 
And uh, one of the challenges is that if you increase sentence length from 15 to 30 years, you double the cost to the taxpayer, but you don't double the deterrent effect. Well, perhaps in this latest role in your life, this is where competition policy and social policy converge for you. Absolutely. So I got the competition portfolio for the Labor Party in 2013 and and initially didn't know a great deal about competition policy. Uh, Industrial organisation is quite a specialised subfield. It's become highly technical in economics over recent years. And I didn't delve into into industrial organisation much during my uh, graduate studies. So it was only having the portfolio that gave me a chance to get a sense as to how it had shifted and the ways in which competition policy aligned with a lot of the issues that trouble me uh, around poverty and disadvantage. You know, I wrote a paper uh, a couple of years ago with Joshua Gans and uh, co-authors in which we looked at the impact of monopoly power on inequality. And we showed that monopoly power transfers resources from consumers to shareholders because shareholdings are very concentrated among the most affluent and consumption is more evenly spread across the population. When you take resources and move them from consumers to shareholders, you're on average moving them from poorer people towards richer people. So monopoly power doesn't just act as a drag on efficiency, it also uh, acts as a drag on equity as well. It sounds a little hipster. Are you a hipster? Well, I I don't uh, particularly go for the label hipster antitrust because I think it's been applied in the US in a way that's calculated to diminish some of the scholars who've made the case, particularly against Lena Khan, the head of the Federal Trade Commission a non-Anglo woman and one of the youngest people to head the agency. So as a 50-year-old white bloke, always happy to be dubbed a hipster, totally take that label, but uh, I'm wary, wary to, uh, to impose it on others and aware of the pejorative overtones that it's taken on in the US debate. Sure. But let's maybe talk about your philosophy of competition. That's probably a fairer way to go about it rather than just play with labels. How would you know if competition is healthy and what are the symptoms if it's not? So if you're a sports fan, then whether it's AFL or netball, you've got... Oh, well, I'm glad you mentioned it. There you go. Or uh, soccer, let's be clear. You've got probably a dozen or more teams to choose from. But if you go into most markets in Australia, whether that's department stores or baby food or beer, banking, you've typically only got a couple of choices. So what that means is that those firms can potentially exert substantial market power in order to reduce the choices that consumers have and to drive up the prices that consumers pay. Uh, That's why antitrust enforcement has been a vital part of economics uh, going back over a century. You need to look only at the writings of Adam Smith to see uh, one of the founding lights of economics talking about the risks of collusion among unscrupulous business people. They're simply following their incentives. Uh, if you're able to uh, get, a, get a monopoly in a market, you're able to, uh, to win the game. So it's, uh, it's up to Parliament to give the tools to the regulator to ensure more dynamism and more options for consumers. I'm told you have a, a party game you like to play where you see if the guests around the dinner table can name industries with more than a handful of competitors. Is that right? That's right. And it tends to be a pretty short party game. 
There's not many industries in Australia which have more than a few players. Maybe you might point to farming, but uh, then you know the problem with poor farmers is that because they're fairly disaggregated, they get squeezed on both ends. They're buying their seeds and their fertilizers from just a couple of companies that can tend to overcharge, and then they're selling their product to processors and supermarkets that are also quite concentrated and can sometimes underpay for the product of farmers. Uh, so it can be a dangerous thing to be a competitive sector within a fairly concentrated economy. But in these times of high scale, uh, companies that gather a lot of scale and maybe have to make big investments, can't markets with, say, three or four major competitors work effectively, do you think? For example, in the mobile phone market for many years, we had three or four networks. Maybe there's a bit of network sharing now. But that's an industry where you've seen phenomenal advances in innovation and huge efficiency gains, actually, as well for consumers who can do all kinds of things on their phone now, gather all sorts of information, do their banking, find out when the next bus is coming, all those sorts of things very easily. And all that has occurred in the context of a handful of network competitors who were vertically integrated and going pretty hard at each other for many years. I mean, can that ever work, do you think? Or, or do you think there is just something red flaggy and alarm belly about markets with a handful of major competitors? Well, scale has always been an argument that's been made by monopolists. So if you go back to Standard Oil in the United States, the claim that having one big oil producer would provide benefits to consumers. If you go look at the railroad barons, the, the claim that having one company owning all the railroads would cause efficiencies to flow through. The claim that was being made by Bell Telecom was similarly that having just one carrier would better serve consumers. The risk is if that monopoly becomes entrenched, then you don't get as much innovation because a monopolist doesn't need to worry about coming up with new ideas. You know, there's a lovely story that Joshua Gans and I tell in uh, Innovation Plus Equality about the delays of the answering machine technology coming on stream because it was uh, produced in Bell Labs. Within the current economy, there are risks that these large monopoly players can throw their weight around. So it's, it's difficult sometimes for those advertising on Google to get full transparency about where their ads have been shown. It can be challenging for artists whose music's appearing on Spotify to be able to get a good sense as to what their royalties look like. Large monopolies don't always play by the same rules as firms in a more competitive sector. So in some of the new tech markets, for example, where Professor Philip Marsden described them as tippy markets where, you know, the winner takes all. And he, he says, well, that, that's fine, but there are markets where that's the most economically efficient outcome. And often it's the one who out-innovates the other who actually gets to be the winner and takes all. What's your philosophy as to how we should approach those things? Obviously, we want to get the benefits of that innovation and that contest is one that's driven new services and new products that have been made widely available. But, you know, that said, the ubiquity and the size of some of those competitors has been the subject of many expressed concerns. How would you approach those kinds of markets? Yeah, I mean, one proposal that's been made through the ACCC's Digital Platform Services Inquiry is to have a ban on unfair trading practices that holds right across platforms and then also platform-specific regulation. This has been described to me as, as having an analogy in the national security space where when a, uh, an energy producer, for example, reaches a certain scale, it becomes strategically important to the grid 
and is therefore designated as, uh, as needing more greater national security oversight. So one might imagine the same sort of approach being taken to technology platforms that attained a certain scale. This is something we're consulting on at the moment. We haven't formed a fixed view, but there is uh, a lot of concern among those who are supplying into these markets. Now, you only need to look at the uh, story of diapers.com, the uh, online nappy store that crashed after Amazon spent, uh, it's reputed to have spent some $200 million in a month in order to take down diapers.com and to send a message to uh, other firms like it not to take on the biggest uh, giant in e-commerce. Well, there is that inquiry going on right now in Treasury following the DPSI repo number five. We have to consider who should write the codes, who should identify the services that should be subject to regulation and who should identify the platforms that will be. What do you think might be the range of outcomes there? Are you able to tell us anything about it? I'm really open to a range of options in that space. We know that the challenge is ensuring that we have dynamic and competitive markets. And we know that in Australia, there's been a decline in market dynamism. I gave uh, the Fred Gruen lecture at the Australian National University last year and presented some of the findings from Treasury research that really trouble me. Market concentration has increased over the last couple of decades. New business startups as a share of all businesses have declined. We've seen a, an increase in markups uh, and we've seen a decline in the share of Australians who are switching jobs. So all of these indicators lead me to think that we need a, a more dynamic economy and the reforms we're consulting on will be a part of delivering that. Can I ask you now about the movement towards ESG considerations in corporate Australia? It's something that's moved much more to the fore in the last few years particularly because of environmental issues and climate change, uh, but also because of a greater consciousness of some of those income and wealth disparity issues that you've talked about and of other kinds of inequalities, gender inequality and inequality amongst disadvantaged groups, including our Indigenous community. How can ESG factors like this be reflected in competition law? We had a discussion with ACCC Chair Gina Cascott-Lieb here at Gilbert and Tobin recently, and she put it to us that the beauty of our Act is that the authorisation process enables a much broader set of public interest criteria and objectives. Do we only have the authorisation process to look to, to give us a foothold to do things that might otherwise be considered anti-competitive, for example, managed exits or transitions that might need to occur with agreed orderly means of going about that? Or do we need to review that and give ourselves a better chance at reaching net zero in a time that doesn't make the earth too hot. We certainly need to do that. And uh, that's why we've committed to a 43% emissions reduction by 2030 and the reforms to uh, areas such as the safeguard mechanism and the uh, rules around offshore wind in order to make it happen. Economists are often concerned about information and the way in which greater information flows can drive better behaviour. The key there is to have metrics that are comparable across firms. Uh, if every firm is doing climate reporting based on a different benchmark, then consumers are left no better off, investors aren't left better off. So metrics such as total carbon footprint can be useful ways of comparing companies, just as health conscious consumers do in taking advantage of the star rating system on foodstuffs. Uh, it's not perfect, but it provides a clear benchmark 
that uh, allows people to compare within categories. Uh, we're moving to uh, gender gap reporting and that uh, information is already being supplied to the Workplace Gender Equality Agency, but it's not being published. Under new reforms that we've announced, that information will be published, which will be important both for consumers, but also for potential employees. And I imagine firms will be looking to how they can become an employer of choice on the gender front. My own area is also involves charities, and I'm keen to look at ways in which we can put the S back into ESG and get more consistent measures of social impact. It might be something like a uh, number of hours of volunteer time delivered by, uh, by employees, uh, or the size of the workplace giving program, or the size of the corporate philanthropy program some sort of benchmark that allows uh, consumers who want to reward firms that are doing good social activities to vote with their wallets. I hear you're a marathon runner and a triathlete. What on earth possesses someone who's as busy as you to do those things? My dad and my grandfather were both marathon runners, so I guess it's in the genes. And uh, I decided, uh, I guess about eight years ago, to, uh, to give the sport a go. And I absolutely love it. There's a real sense of joy about the fact that when you're on the starting line, it's really not your equipment that counts, it's how much training you've done. And I love the camaraderie and the way in which runners have both a sense of competitiveness, but also a sense of kindness. And I have on the wall in my office uh, that wonderful photo from the moment in which John Landy stops to check on an injured Ron Clark before then running on to win the mile race. I, uh, I've gotten more into ultramarathons and Ironman triathlons in recent years. Don't you get bored without a ball to chase? So I've, I've never uh, been as coordinated as, uh, as many of my friends in that department. I am a great admirer of those who uh, have the hand-eye coordination. My middle son is into circus and can uh, juggle knives. My uh, eldest is Whoa. a hip-hop dancer and is uh, superbly coordinated. Their father lacks uh, any, any abilities in, uh, in either of those areas. Well, Professor Philip Marsden was on this pod and he's also an ultra-marathon runner. He said they were like eating contests where it was just a contest as who could eat the most in 20 hours while moving forward in a more or less straight line. And he said he was very good at that. So perhaps that runs in the economist bloodline as well. Um, there's also a great joy, of course, after doing an ultramarathon about uh, being able to eat absolutely anything you like. Well, Dr. Andrew Lee, thank you very much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure talking with you and good luck with that next ultramarathon. Thanks, Mario. I really enjoyed the conversation. What a great interview. Uh, listeners might not realise that that whole time you were both running around central Canberra from the High Court to the ACCC to Parliament House, all at about six minutes per kilometre. It was like the West Wing walk and talk on Fast Forward. Yeah, I was hoping there'd be cycling, but I'm certainly glad there wasn't any swimming in Lake Burley Griffin. Yeah, and I guess there could be a more advanced edition of the party game or the barbecue game where you have to list Australian industries that have more than a handful of players or that have a few evenly matched players competing vigorously or even a bunch of innovative smaller players that keep the big ones on their toes. Or you could just play cricket or five-a-side like a normal barbecue. You could. Do you think he was winding you up talking about AFL and netball before he mentioned soccer? Well, Canberra doesn't have an A-League men's team yet, but it does have an A-League women's team, and their home ground is in his electorate. And he did call it soccer, not football, so yeah, maybe he was winding me up. <laughs> Go United, anyway. You know, his electorate also includes the Jervis Bay Territory, which is more than 200 kilometres to the east of Canberra, and was carved out of New South Wales to give the capital access to the sea. Well, that's an ultra marathon just to go door knocking. 
So apart from Canberra joining the A-League men in 24-25, what's in your crystal ball? Well, we're all on tenterhooks waiting to see what the ACCC is going to recommend to government for the future of Australia's merger approval system. As you know, the old chair and the new chair have both said they don't think the current informal system is fulfilling its purpose. At the CEDA event, Chair Gina Cascotlieb said there was an important case for reform in the merger process and the ACCC will shortly take their views to government. They're working on the principles and the case for change and have put some thought into thresholds, but it was too early to say much more about that. Yeah, but Commissioner Stephen Ridgway may have given us a bit of a preview in an interview with Power Global where he says that the ACCC is very interested in a new mandatory merger approval process and that a specific test for digital platforms might also be necessary. But he suggested that changes to the substantive test might be less of a priority. Well, it does feel like the chair has said more about the ACCC's issues with the process than about the test itself. Yeah, she did tell the Economic Dynamism Inquiry that the questions about the substantive test also needed careful consideration. But I wouldn't be surprised if that took a bit of a backseat. Well, it can't be long now. It can't. Uh, In other news, the ABA Antitrust Spring Meeting is about to kick off in Washington, D.C., and our colleague, Anna Belgiorno-Nettis, will be talking on a panel on equity in competition law with former podcast guest Betty Mkachwa, who's now with the South African Competition Commission. She might get to do some of that Aaron Sorkin walking and talking. We'll find out when she gets back, but definitely drop in if you're in the DC area. And remember, you can find relevant links in the show notes and email us at edge at gtlaw.com.au. And we've got some great guests still to come, including Sarah Lynch with a much-anticipated Port Report. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, leave us a review and tell your friends. Till next time, this was The Competitive Edge with Gilbert and Tobin. <laughs>